Missing 411. This short phrase conjures up images of people lost under impossible situations. There are scores of books on this subject. It has its own subreddit that gets dozens of new stories every day. It's an unsolvable puzzle that's as fun as it is terrifying. This week, for better or worse, we dip back into this frightening bag for new tales to capture your imagination. Enjoy! Welcome, welcome to all of you. Back to Killing, Missing, Hidden, the greatest podcast ever produced in the state of Alabama. Yeah, I said it. I'll fight you about it. I'm your pacifist host, your old buddy Brad, here to regale you with some lovely tales of the Missing 411 variety. These episodes are always super popular with you guys, so I assume you've heard one of the other three we've done, right? Surely. Surely you have. No? Okay. Well, what you really need to do is go listen to our fifth episode. That'll kind of give you an in-depth idea as to what this whole missing 411 thing is, if you're not familiar. To sum it up in roughly one sentence, it's very strange, often unexplainable disappearances of people in national parks that share many bizarre traits. Like a lot of these stories, you'll find only the shoes of the missing person or the Weather takes a crazy turn right after they go missing. Dave Politis is credited with being kind of the force behind the phenomenon, uh, at least as far as collecting the stories and sharing them with the world. A lot of folks claim he's a grifter. Some think he's really found something. I'll leave it up to you, dear listener, to make up your own mind. Regardless, they make for some crazy stories and excellent entertainment. So join me as we squeeze a fourth episode out of this massive moneymaker for me. Eugene Wah disappeared on August 11th, 2008 from Glacier National Park in Montana. The 27-year-old was born in Malaysia but moved to Kentucky in the United States where he attended college. He was a regular outdoorsman and actually wrote for a website, uh, backpackgearistest.org where it was his job to go out into the field and test new gadgets and other gear and write reviews on them. Wa had meticulously planned this 96-mile hike through the Glacier National Park with his wife, with his goal being to reach Kintla Lake, a a popular camping area, after starting at the St. Mary Visitor Center and heading through Logan's Pass. The hike was expected to take about eight days to complete because the terrain is just exceptionally rugged, especially on the path that he had chosen. Now, sadly, a family emergency forced his wife to stay behind, and she tried to convince him not to go, but Wa had, you know, planned for this trip for a while. He had paid for it, and he said, I'm going, by God. Now, he was a very experienced hiker, very experienced outdoorsman, and he totally understood that going alone made this hike slightly riskier. You know, if you ran into any complications like wild animals or bad weather, if you caught hypothermia or altitude sickness, 
His situation could become critical pretty fast, but he was very confident in his skills. When he arrived at St. Mary's to begin his hike, Quad checked in with the ranger station there to receive his permit. And the park rangers saw the route and the plans he had, and they were really concerned. They didn't like him doing this solo, and they tried to talk him out of the attempt. But Wash assured him that, you know, look, I'm very experienced. I even write for outdoor websites, and I can handle, you know, most problems that would present themselves on a solo trek like this. So reluctantly, the park officials gave him a permit to hike. Now, even like the first leg of this hike was thought to be extremely difficult. It it required him going up a mountain, basically. And it was so steep and challenging that no one, while included, expected anyone else to be on this path while he was hiking it. It was... I guess you could argue unnecessary as the first two days of this eight-day hike were essentially a giant loop. He wanted to kind of circle the area before he moved towards Kentla Lake. But, you know, the goal of the hike is to enjoy the beauty of the area. And once he completed his circuit, he was going to stop by his car, pick up extra supplies, and really get serious about this hike. After Wad had been gone for a week, his wife called the ranger station to let them know that Wad never checked in with any of his family. And the plan was, once he reached the campground at Kintla Lake, he was going to call everybody to let them know they was okay. So, since it had been over a week, nobody had heard from him, she was a little panicked. The rangers, first thing they did, went right to Wad's car to see if He had taken the supplies he said he was going to take and all that. And it was parked in the same spot, and it looked like all the extra supplies were still inside. Obviously suggesting that he had never completed that beginning circuit that he wanted to. So rangers and other search personnel began looking for evidence of Waz playing trail and talking to other people who were in the area. You know, and as expected, no one recalled seeing a solo hiker going up into the mountain, though several of them remember talking to Wa before he began his hike. A couple of them recalled him saying that he was thinking about going through an area known as Floral Park to reach his first campsite, which would be off route. By the time search and rescue teams really made it into the field, Over three inches of fresh snow had fallen in the area, hiding any tracks that Wild would have left. And again, this is in the month of August. Search and rescue teams spent over 2,500 hours, man hours, obviously, looking for Wild during the month of August alone. And, you know, remember, he left for his icon August 11th, and he wasn't reported as missing until August 17th. So that's really... 2,500 hours over the course of two weeks. That's about 180 man hours expended per day. So, you know, we can't say uh, the Rangers didn't take this one seriously. (laughs) They were out there in force. Now, the search efforts weren't just on foot. They had horseback teams. They had sniffer dogs. They even had helicopters fitted with special heat-seeking equipment to help look for Wa in this dense jungle and mountain terrain. Now, while the rangers and the search and rescue teams were doing this, 
law enforcement decided to poke around into Wah's background to see, you know, if he had some money problems or other issues that would cause him to want to disappear. But he came up clean. There was They couldn't find any motive he would have to escape his life. And Wah's wife insisted that he would never, ever leave a trail. Like, he preached that. He knew how important it was to stay en route when you're out in the wilderness. And she said she couldn't imagine him breaking this rule while he's out there alone in the wilderness. Now, she, the police said, and the search and rescue teams both said that she was a very valuable asset in assisting searchers to understand how Wild would have thought in a typical situation or in a potentially dangerous encounter he would have come across. So she was really a very valuable advisor while they did this search to help them focus on the different areas they needed to focus on. But despite these 2,500 hours of searching, nothing was found. The canine units caught no scent of Wah, like from his car or anywhere. They just couldn't catch a scent. The trails were totally empty of any evidence that Wah had been there. There was no evidence that Wah went off the trails. Naturally, they didn't search miles off. They just would search a few hundred yards off each trail, but couldn't find any evidence of him ever leaving the trail. They even brought in a specialized search and rescue team who were trained in technical rope climbing. And they took their time on the mountaintop, like going down cliff faces to look in little nooks and crannies to see if maybe somehow he slipped off and got caught in one of these little holes on the side of the the cliff. Uh, But they came up empty too. Lakes and rivers in the area were searched. Waterfalls were searched. Caves were searched. You know, any potential hiding place where, you know, an injured man could pull himself into to get out of the weather, they were searched. Boulder fields were searched. Basically every spot on Waz Plan Trail, plus those areas of interest just off the trail, were searched up and down, totally, multiple times. And nothing was ever found. We have, you know, those stories from the folks saying that Wild wanted to go through the Floral Park. Well, they searched the entire Floral Park area and found nothing. And every search and rescue member that spoke to the media, every ranger that spoke to the media, basically expressed a lot of frustration because relatively speaking, this was an easy search because they had such a predefined area to look in and they should have found some evidence of why and never did. This isn't like a child wandering out into the woods and you don't know where they went. This was a very experienced man who had very detailed trails, you know, plans marked about where he'd be hiking, where he'd be camping He listed all his equipment that he'd be carrying with the Rangers um, and nothing. There's just nothing out there. Eventually, they had to suspend the full-scale search as the winter weather began to dominate the area. And, you know, Rangers kind of did all they could do and told Wise family, look, we'll continue to follow up on any clues that we find. If anybody brings any bits of evidence to our attention will be out there, but we just can't search in this winter weather. And so Waz's fate remained a mystery. 
until July 3rd, 2011. A father and son were hiking in roughly the same area that Wa would have been in when he disappeared. And roughly means roughly. <laughs> um, they were trying to hike down from what was known as Avalanche Lake into Floral Park, but they were having problems finding a path. And as they searched, the son discovered a nylon rope and some long underwear just disposed of in the grass. It was obvious from the appearance of the long underwear that it had been there for a spell. And both men found it strange that someone would leave, you know, potentially valuable clothing. Really, you know, hikers are pretty environmentally conscious to begin with. And so to leave anything behind is odd. But to leave something as invaluable as long underwear and a rope in, you know, such a off-the-beaten-path location, it just it didn't sit right with them. So they decided that rather than really messing with anything, they would call the rangers. And this proved to be a very, very wise decision. When the rangers got there, they were able to find the rope and the long underwear quickly, thanks to the hiker's help. And sure enough, the long underwear was the brand that Wa said he would be have with them. The nylon rope, same deal. And... So they decided to really, really dig into this area and search to see if maybe he had fallen off the cliff and just, you know, was never discovered for whatever reason while they searched through the snow. And sure enough, underneath the long underwear, they found some bone fragments. And they sent those away for forensic testing. And forensic experts were able to confirm that the bones were was. Now, this was an area that was searched before by search and rescue teams in 2008, and they found nothing. But now that we've got better weather and nothing in the way, you know, this father and son team just stumbled into it. Now, despite finding long underwear and a nylon rope and bone fragments, not much else was found at the scene. You know, based on this scant bit of evidence, rangers could conclude that Wa was dead, but it was not possible to determine a cause of death. Rangers also thought the evidence was likely swept down from the cliffs above when the snows had melted. But that's all they could really determine, and saying they determined that, it's more like they kind of made their best guess based on such tiny amounts of evidence. Um, of course, they did continue to search the area for weeks afterwards, just hoping to find something else. They searched the cliffs above where they thought maybe his body had been. Nothing was ever found. A member of the search team speculated the only thing that made sense in his mind, based on what little bits of evidence they had, is that Wa tried to climb down a random cliff face to reach a lower trail that was never explored, but he said that that was a pretty big reach because no one with any sense would try to make such a difficult climb, and Wa didn't even have the proper gear with him, according to his equipment list, to even attempt to make such a climb. 
Others involved in the search were very frustrated, again, by their lack of success and really just couldn't develop a theory that they could buy as to why those little bits of remains were found where they were. Now, to this day, here are, what, over 10 years later, neither was full remains nor any major pieces of his equipment have ever been found. It's frankly like the mountain just swallowed him whole. Now, my quick thoughts on this case. This is, you know, kind of your classic missing 411 case. While appears to have been a very experienced outdoorsman, he was in very good shape. You know, he was so experienced, again, that he was kind of this part-time reviewer slash reporter for an outdoor website. Um, He's hiking in this area surrounded by boulder fields and water, which are two big red flags in the Missing 411 universe. And despite being such a highly experienced hiker, while leaves no evidence as to where he may be, we can't find his body, his scent can't even be found by trained canine search and rescue dogs. Naturally, as soon as he goes missing, snow starts to fall. And, of course, obscuring any obvious tracks. All we do get here are random bone fragments with no evidence that they could be credited to an animal attack. And, of course... The fragments are found in a location that was thoroughly searched multiple times before the main search was suspended. So what are we supposed to conclude here? Yeah, I reckon this is one of those you can go as far as you feel comfortable if you're willing to believe. If you're open to the idea of aliens or portals to other dimensions or that Bigfoot could be behind these disappearances... Wise case isn't going to do anything to change your mind. If you take the view that these national parks are vast and rugged terrain, meaning it just would be hard to find a body, and there's no supernatural explanation, this case won't change your mind on that front either. It's one that just kind of fits your view of how reality works, whatever that may be. And, you know, I can't see anything noteworthy that hasn't been picked up on by others. You know, I I guess my biggest concern would be that Wa got a little bit cocky and tried to take on a perceived shortcut or scale this cliff that he really wasn't prepared to climb. But the lack of a body just stinking bothers me. Why do we have bone fragments and nothing else? You know, I wish I knew what part of the body the fragments were from, too, because if it's, like, finger bones... That's much less unsettling in my mind than, you know, say if you've got parts of a shattered sternum. (laughs) Obviously, uh, an animal could pull off a limb and drag it and then have the bones fall where they may once it's done eating it. But if it's a major bone that we were finding fragments from, that's a little bit of a different story. So I guess the lesson we should take away from Wa's case is that if the park rangers tell you that your planned hike is awfully ambitious, maybe you should consider altering it just a wee bit. So, this next case. I was certain we had covered it in a previous Missing 411 episode, but from reviewing my old scripts, I don't think we have. And that makes me kind of happy, because... 
it gets harder and harder to find good missing 411 stories each time we do these episodes. So we're going to learn all about the crazy disappearance and, spoiler alert, death of Charles McClure. So we got to hop back in time to 1975, and then we have to hop on over to Crater Lake National Park in Oregon on the West Coast. It's supposed to be an amazingly beautiful park. Uh, The pictures I've seen certainly confirm that. Beautiful mountains, sprawling forests, fields of wildflowers, picturesque waters, just amazingly beautiful country. And Crater Lake is this massive lake with just stunningly blue waters. It's the deepest lake in the United States, and I think it's the third deepest in the world if you go by average depth. But regardless, it's this big blue honking monster sitting out there that is beautiful and people love to come to, take pictures, camp, hike, all that stuff. It's just a really cool scene. Now, Charles is from Virginia, and after high school, he had left Virginia to kind of go on this massive road trip. You know, one of those finding yourself sort of journeys, I guess. And it was really just him and his old trusty camera. He was a big photographer. He loved taking pictures. And so on his trip, he had, you know, Virginia's on the east coast of the United States and Oregon's on the west coast. So he drives across the country and eventually arrives in Eugene, Oregon, where he's got a buddy who's um, attending the University of Oregon. And this predates their current array of amazing football uniforms. Um Charles was, you know, prepared to hang out with Buddy for a couple of weeks, but he was going to take a few days to himself to go visit Crater Lake and just take all the pictures he could because he had heard rumors about it, he had seen pictures of it, and he wanted to capture his own memories of the beauty. Now, this was in January, so it was cold, but Charles had camping gear in his car and was fairly experienced in the outdoors despite his young age. Did I mention his age yet? I think I did. If I didn't, he was 19. So Charles, you know, left his buddy's home, told him to, you know, I'll smell you later in a couple days. And that was the last time he went ever saw Charles. When Charles, again, he was just going to be gone two days, right? So when Charles didn't return on the second day, the friend didn't think too much of it. But by the end of the third day, the buddy was worried and he called the police. Police immediately mobilized and happened to stumble into some witnesses who had seen Charles near Diamond Lake. Now, Diamond Lake is about 45 minutes north of Crater Lake by car. So I guess when I said the last person to see Charles alive was his buddy, that that was kind of an outright lie. I I apologize. I'll end the podcast right here now forever if you can't trust me anymore. No, we're, we're good. Okay, awesome. I mean, I just hate to leave you hanging with that doubt. But anyway, all right, so some other witnesses claim to have seen Charles hiking along North Road, which was odd because that road was buried under about five foot of snow. So why was Charles walking that way? And how did these folks find themselves in a position to see Charles walking that way? There was also a truck driver who said he had picked up Charles off the side of the road and given him a ride to Crater Lake because Charles' vehicle, a VW van, just couldn't handle the snowy conditions. 
All right, so let's look at a map to kind of piece all this together. Like I said, Diamond Lake is essentially directly north of Crater Lake. And kind of in between the two, it looks like there is a north road. It's about 13 miles south of Diamond Lake, which in normal conditions would take 18 minutes by car. But, you know, that's by today's maps. And I don't know if any of the roads I'm letting Google Maps tell me about existed back in the 70s. But if you're hiking from Diamond Lake to Crater Lake, that's about a seven-hour hike, again, in good conditions. Here we've got massive snow drifts everywhere. You know, the police tried to conduct a proper search of the areas Charles had reportedly been seen in, but the snow was fierce at this time of year. Like, certain areas, the snow banks were 12 foot tall, kind of fierce. That's like 3.7 meters. Charles' father, when he learned what was going on, flew from Virginia to Oregon to help out with the search, but there was nothing to do because they just, they couldn't, get anywhere the weather was just too bad the snow was built up too bad everywhere so he kind of flew out there to sit and wait for the snows to thaw now during this time several people allege that the fbi poked their noses into thing which if you listen to the other episodes you know that's always a bit of a red flag because the fbi doesn't include themselves in missing persons cases except in very specific circumstances but regardless, like, no real search was conducted until after the snows melted. And then, you know, once the snows melted, Charles' dad was still there. And, you know, he stayed out in Oregon well into summertime to be part of the show. As search and rescue teams are out there, as police are searching, as rangers are searching, nothing's found. There's just no evidence that Charles had ever been in the area. Several authorities thought that Charles had used this opportunity to run off and start a new life. All his friends and family said this idea was crazy. There were others who suspected he had been kidnapped or killed. Couldn't find any evidence of that, though. They were just theories. The most popular hypothesis that was batted around was that Charles had died due to misadventure. And because of the large area that had to be searched... They just hadn't found his final resting place. Well, his final resting place would be found by a pair of hikers in October of 1976. They found a beat-up backpack that they thought looked suspicious. So they took it to the nearest ranger's office, and the ranger who poked through it developed the opinion that it was likely Charles. That guess was soon to be confirmed as the keys that were found inside the bag matched perfectly to Charles' car. The backpack was found 12 miles from where Charles had said he'd be camping out. Rangers immediately sent a patrol on horseback to do an initial search of the location where the backpack was found. Now, it was found near what's called Bybee Creek, and it didn't take rangers long to find Charles' remains further down the creek. Only the discovery of the remains kind of jumped up this case by about 12 levels of craziness. Bybee Creek is about 5 miles west, or 8 kilometers, as the crow flies from Crater Lake, but you just can't march in a straight line there. There's no direct trails. So to hike from Crater Lake 
to Bybee Creek would take something like 33 miles or 53 kilometers. And this isn't the crazy part, okay? (laughs) The rangers found a pair of jeans sitting on a log. The jeans were almost in brand new condition. There weren't any other bits of clothing around. No shirt, no boots. Well, there were, okay, at the bottom of the jeans there were uh, socks. Like the socks were kind of coming out of the leg holes. Kind of like what you would see on a mannequin, right? But, and, and there was a belt too. There was a belt on the jeans. And it looked like, apparently when you stare, when you first looked at it, it looked like somebody had like removed, open, unbuttoned their jeans, undone their belt, undone the zipper, and were in the process of removing the jeans. And that's how they were left sitting on the slog. So it kind of, I mean, how it gets in that condition, I don't know. But look, let's not focus on that. Let's focus on this. The socks had foot bones in them. Now, the ends of some of the toes were missing, but by and large, each sock held a human skeleton's foot. And in the jeans, you had part of human legs. Each leg hole had a tibia and a fibia sticking up, sort of connected to the feet, but these shin bones were incomplete. They had been snapped in half with the top half missing. One of the rangers said it looked like the bones had melted like candles. Just in case you're wondering, there's no blood on the jeans, no tissue remains. It's literally just denim and bone. Now let's take a step back for a moment just so we can truly appreciate the horror of the scene. These rangers find a pair of jeans, jeans that look almost brand new, in a sitting position on a log with socks at the end of the leg holes. The pants had been undone, and all that was left holding up the pants and the socks were parts of shin bones and most of the foot and ankle bones, with no blood or anything else. It's like Charles was going to take a poo and then just melted halfway through. Authorities, of course, swarmed the scene, looking for any other traces of Charles. About 12 feet away from the pants of nightmares, there was the top of a skull and a few random bone fragments. Charles, of course. And that's all that would ever be found. The powers that be's official story is that Charles died in the snow and some animal snapped off his top three quarters without leaving any blood behind or damaging the genes in any way. And that's the story. Case, case closed, right? Nice, simple, easy explanation. <laughs> now, um, you know, I'd love to sit here and debate possible theories with you, but I have no flipping clue what happened or even where to begin that process. Assuming the kid made it to Crater Lake, how and why did he end up being found 12 miles from his purported campsite? He would have had to hike dozens of miles in the snow, and that was through drifts that was much taller than he was. And for what purpose? It makes no sense for him to be way out there. Plus, we have to ask, where's his camera? It should have been near his body. I mean, photographers do not lose their camera. 
you know, if it's if it's hanging off the side of a cliff and you're hanging off the side of a cliff, they're getting their camera first before they save you. <laughs> so that's very strange. I'm also befuddled by, well, of course, I mean, the whole scene is bizarre, but the one little detail that sticks out to me is the socks contain an entire human skeletal foot, but for some toes. So somehow toe bones got pulled out of the socks without disturbing the rest of this macabre scene. I mean, I know we've got lots of craziness here, and that's just one minor point in it, but that's just one of those minor details that you look at and you say, this this can't, this doesn't, no, it doesn't make sense. It's not possible. Now, we also need to talk about the FBI, because there was no reason for them to be out there. In fact, the FBI being involved was so unusual that then-U.S. Senator William L. Scott from Oregon tried to figure out what was going on. And no matter who he talked to, no matter what strings he pulled, he got the same brief answer. After reviewing the evidence, the FBI believes Charles was the victim of foul play. They don't point to what evidence. They don't discuss how they reached that conclusion. They just say, we think Charles was killed. This inquiry occurred when the snows were still covering the territory. So no one knew about Charles' body yet. Why would the FBI report to a U.S. senator that it was murder without knowing where, that there was a body out there? And what do we say about the condition of his body? Why is that not something the FBI ever talks about? I mean, they keep a lot of crap secret. I get that. And I'm not saying they shouldn't. But when a U.S. senator asks you a question, you're kind of expected to give a full and honest answer because, you know, the Senate kind of helps determine things like how much money your agency gets. So, I mean, look, you could tell me that Bender from Futurama came to life, traveled back in time, then fried this kid with some futuristic technology, and I couldn't argue against it. That's how bizarre the scene is. And, you know, that's almost more believable to me than the idea that a family of foxes found him and got to pull the flesh off to eat during the winter because they wouldn't carry away that much of a human body. So you guys ponder this one. I've got nothing I can say that will make it any less confusing or horrific, but if you've got a neat idea on this one, sure would love to hear it. Post about it in our Facebook group. Share it with the world. I'm sure the world would love an answer to this one. Okay, we're going to end on a happier note, so hopefully you won't be dreaming about pants and tibias tonight. We will now explore the very, very strange disappearance and reappearance of eight-year-old Catherine Van Arst. Now, Catherine lived in Washington County, Arkansas, back in 1946. Today, this part of the world is kind of considered a hidden gem for folks who like to go hiking and camping, horseback riding, mountain biking. Um, there's even folks who enjoy hunting for fossils, and they consider this kind of, you know, unexplored territory. 
So back in 1946, Catherine and her family were enjoying the day, playing in a nearby creek as part of their family vacation. It was a camping trip. She was playing in the water from the creek with her dad and her brothers when she just disappeared. Like, literally, all the stories say everybody turned around for a moment and turned back. Catherine was in the water when they turned around. When they turned back around, she was not there. So, of course, immediately the family begins looking for her, calling her name, poking around, but she was gone. They couldn't find her. They couldn't even find footprints. Nothing. And as the sun started to set, the family kind of went into a near panic and notified park officials that Catherine was missing because she's lost in the woods with only a bathing suit. You know, that's that's not good. Now, searchers were brought in, and they made a very detailed and a very deliberate search plan. It was very thorough, very impressive. They were going to cover several square miles in meticulous detail. They considered this a very critical case because Catherine was wearing nothing but a bathing suit. I mean, we're not even talking about shoes or sandals or anything else. So they searched and searched, and searched. And after six days, no trace of Catherine could be found. So, naturally, we've got hope waning faster and faster, and at the as the end of day six was approaching, some searchers on foot were covering an area that had been covered maybe dozens of times, when out of nowhere, Catherine just walked out from behind a tree and said, here I am. She saw the searchers and waved to them like she was waving to a neighbor on a lazy stroll. Those who found her said she was extremely calm, almost like she was in a daze. And yes, she was still barefoot and still only in her swimsuit. Catherine had taken shelter in a cave during the six days she was missing. It was about seven miles or 11 kilometers away from her family's campsite. But again, that's as the crow flies. To walk to the spot, one had to cover nearly 30 miles or 48 kilometers. And it wasn't, you know, this nice, beaten-down, cushioned path. This was very rocky terrain in a thick forest with lots of steep hills. And when rescuers found her, amazingly, she was in pretty darn good shape. The cave happened to have this natural spring inside, giving her access to fresh water. She had been eating berries for food and you know she was scratched up and bruised and she had insect bites her feet were swollen but she didn't have any real issues to speak of now the cave was well known in the area and it had been searched at least three times before Catherine was found twice the search teams included bloodhounds In the cave, there was kind of this bed of straw or grass that had been, I mean, it looked like it had been set up for her or by her. And she claimed that when she would, you know, lay on top of it, it would kind of magically become warmer for her. Also, her living off of berries is kind of unusual because... While there are lots of berries in this area, the majority of them are extremely poisonous. And, in fact, all the berries growing right around the cave were poisonous. So how did this little girl know which 
bushes to pick berries from. She wasn't trained as an outdoorsman in any way, shape, or form. Did she just get that lucky? After she was taken to the hospital and cleaned up and all that, of course, everybody wanted to know what happened. And Lil' Catherine couldn't really say. Her story was she was, you know, playing in the water with her brothers and her dad when she suddenly was just lost. She couldn't figure out how to get back to their campsite. She couldn't find her parents or her brothers. She called for help. No one heard her. She heard no one around. It was like she was totally isolated. Um, You know, almost like she stepped into some sort of alternative reality. But she never seemed to indicate that she got scared. She couldn't really tell authorities how she found the cave, but she knew once she found it, she would be very safe there. When she was asked about the other search parties that had come through and why she didn't try to get their attention, she said, no, no, that's not true. I tried, but they ignored me. You know, she said she would yell and wave and all that, and they would just look like right through her like she wasn't there. Now, she did say that the dogs scared her, and so when she saw dogs coming in to the cave, she tried to hide. But again, there was at least one search party that didn't have dogs that came through, and two, none of the bloodhounds indicated they caught any scent of her in that cave. So no one has ever really been able to put together a theory that puts all the pieces of Catherine's story together with all the facts the searchers had collected. No one could really explain how someone that young could navigate the woods so well, and for so long, in only a bathing suit. No one could explain how she resided in a cave without being detected by the previous three search parties. No one could explain why the sniffer dogs didn't catch her scent. No one could explain how she could feed herself so well. Authorities eventually just discounted her story entirely and assumed that, you know, she was confused, maybe a little delirious from exposure and exhaustion and just the trauma of the situation. So what do we think? Well, I mean, you know, if you have kids or you've been around kids, you know they have fantastic imaginations and can explain the impossible with more of the impossible, right? But if we look only at the search and rescue team's facts, this still makes for an incredible story. How could she have gotten away from her brothers and her dad so easily? I just think that a full-grown man could easily keep up with an eight-year-old in this situation. Maybe the eight-year-old runs faster than daddy or something like that, but he's going to be able to I mean, unless he's disabled in some way that wasn't discussed in any of the articles, he should be able, I would think, to keep up with her and keep an eye on her. And, you know, even if she was as sneaky as a raccoon, would she really have the energy to get to the cave? I mean, 30 miles, that's a long hike. And, you know, the internet, from my research, tells me that someone of Catherine's age could probably cover five to seven miles per day on easy terrain. That's just over eight kilometers. How far could she really travel in rugged terrain like we've got here? So even let's just ignore that. Let's say she could do the five to seven miles per day speed, okay? 
Well, for her to travel 30 miles, that's at least four days for her to reach the cave, right? And that's assuming she knows exactly where the cave is. When children get lost, they just wander haphazardly, generally. And in the woods, it would take so much longer to find this cave, right? I mean, because it's hidden by trees, you don't know that it's there unless you know that it's there. And none of this, of course, is my area of expertise, but... I mean, I've never seen my kids walk up the driveway in a straight line. So I can't imagine if they're out in the woods that they would, you know, just follow the sun, head west. You know, if we release 100 barefoot drunk children into the woods, how many would actually find the cave? I mean, I don't know the answer, but I'm kind of thinking we may have stumbled across a new game show idea. Anyway... Um, you know, sadly, there's not a ton of information I could find on this case. So we do have to consider the possibility, too, that there's some exaggerated or bad facts mixed into what I did find. But regardless, it's a crazy story, and it leaves one's mind open to some crazy possibilities if you allow it to. Because the nice, easy, logical explanations, they don't fit real well here especially when you've got search parties all over the area. I mean, they visited that cave three times over six days. By standard math, Catherine couldn't have gotten to that cave until the end of the fourth day. I just don't believe that she could be wandering the woods without being caught by some other search and rescue groups that were out there or some of the bloodhounds that were out there. And, you know, if she had to lay down and rest, there'd be evidence of that. Trackers are very good at picking up on those sorts of things. None of that was here. It's, it just leaves you with that feeling. I know nobody wants to say this out loud because it makes you sound, you know, kind of crazy to believe it. But I know y'all already kind of think I'm not all there anyway. Um, it just kind of leaves you with this feeling that she was like, teleported there you know using star trek technology or something um because there's just no way she could travel that far and, and and bed down you know she said she spent the first night in that bed of grass that's just not possible it's not i don't know it's a weird one it's a weird one it's a weird one Okay, well, that, that's going to do it for our latest dip into the Missing 411 waters. Um, only three tales this time, but there were three pretty dang good ones, if I do say so myself. Hopefully they meet the standard of excellence you've come to expect from KMH. So, as always, I hope you enjoyed our time together. As you can tell, I'm even wearing an iron shirt for you today. Nothing special. Just wanted to make y'all know that, you know, I try to dress up for y'all. Because y'all are, you know, the peanut butter to my chocolate. The the Ross to my Rachel. The holes in my Swiss cheese. Please continue to publicly admit that you enjoy our program. Share it with your friends and your loved ones. Maybe play our episodes really loud in the car or in the office so you force others to fall under the spell of my enchanting voice. If you haven't, and you can. We'd love to have a nice rating on Apple Podcasts from you. That would make you the bestest. It gives me the will to keep recording, you know, just one more episode. Just got to do one more episode. All right. No, I kid. I enjoy this. This is fun for me. And y'all make it fun. 
Oh, you, uh, we haven't done our palate cleanser. I'm rambling like a madman, and we haven't done our palate cleanser. Okay, all right, let's do that. Okay, here's what we've got. <clears throat> what animal has eight legs and can always tell you the correct time? What animal has eight legs and can always tell you the correct time? Why, of course, it's a clocktopus. You get it? Clocktopus. It's like an octopus, only a clock. Yeah, you get it. You get it. And y'all love it. We love corny ones, right? Thank you, my listeners, for joining us today. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I know we're a little overdue for Missing 411, but I thought it was a good way to end the month of November. Had things gone better, you probably would have gotten in October because we had been hitting it about every six months. But regardless... Um, I will now say goodbye to you in the manner that so many other podcasts say goodbye to their friends. We'll see you next time. Bye. Perfect. Perfect outro, right? Good. All right. Right out. Thank you for listening to Kellen Missing Hidden. Make sure to rate, subscribe, and share. Questions? Email us at info kmhpodcast.com